0: Welcome to Strangely's Reading of Moby Dick. For an explanation of this project and its rationale, please see the Strangely's Moby Dick, and Introduction episode of this podcast. Trigger Warning Moby Dick, like many of us, was created prior to 2019. As such, it may contain language, ideas, and situations which might not be up to the standards of the modern reader. Furthermore, it's about muscular semen hunting creatures that are remarkably phallic in shape. It's gonna get sweaty. Strangely presents an unabridged audiobook of Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Part 6. Chapter 35. The Masthead. It was during the more pleasant weather, that in due rotation with the other seamen, my first masthead came round. In most American whalemen, the mastheads are manned almost simultaneously with the vessels leaving her port, even though she may have 15,000 miles and more to sail ere reaching her proper cruising ground. And if, after three, four, or five years' voyage, she is drawing nigh home with anything empty in her, say, an empty vial even, then her mastheads are kept manned to the last, and not till her skysail poles sail in among the spires of the port, does she altogether relinquish the hope of capturing one more whale. Now, as the business of standing mastheads ashore or afloat is a very ancient and interesting one, let us in some measure expatiate here. I take it that the earliest standards of mastheads were the old Egyptians, because in all my researches I find none prior to them. For though their progenitors, the builders of Babel, most doubtless by their tower, have intended to rear the loftiest masthead in all Asia, or Africa either, yet ere the final truck was put to it, as that great stone mast of theirs may be said to have gone by the board in the dread gale of God's wrath, therefore we cannot give these Babel builders priority over the Egyptians. And that the Egyptians were a nation of masthead standers is an assertion based upon the general belief among archaeologists that the first pyramids were founded for astrological purposes, a theory singularly supported by the peculiar stair-like formation of all four sides of those edifices, whereby, with prodigious long upliftings of their legs, those old astronomers were wont to mount to the apex and sing out for new stars even as the lookouts of a modern ship sing out for a sail, or a whale despairing in sight. In St. Stylides, the famous Christian hermit of old times, who built him a lofty stone pillar in the desert and spent the whole latter portion of his life on its summit, hoisting his food from the ground with a tackle, in him we have a remarkable instance of a dauntless stander of mastheads, who was not to be driven from his place by fogs or frosts, rain, hail, or sleet. But, valiantly facing everything out to the last, literally died at his post. Of modern standards of mastheads, we have but a lifeless set. Mere stone, iron, and bronze men who, though well capable of facing out a stiff gale, are still entirely incompetent to the business of singing out upon discovering any strange sight. There is Napoleon, who upon the top of the column of Vendôme stands with arms folded some 150 feet in the air, careless, now, who rules the decks below, whether Louis Philippe, Louis Blanc, or Louis the Devil. Great Washington, too, stands high aloft on his towering mainmast in Baltimore, and like one of Hercules' pillars, his column marks that point of human grandeur beyond which few mortals will go. Admiral Nelson also, on a capstan of gunmetal, stands his masthead in Trafalgar Square, and ever when most obscured by that London smoke token is yet given that a hidden hero is there, for where there is smoke must be fire. But neither great Washington, nor Napoleon, nor Nelson will answer a single hail from below, however madly invoked, to befriend by their counsels the distracted decks upon which they gaze. However, it may be surmised that their spirits penetrate through the thick haze of the future and decry what shoals and rocks must be shunned. It may seem unwarrantable to couple in any respect the masthead standards of the land with those of the sea, but that in truth is not so, is plainly evinced by an item for which Obed Macy, the sole historian of Nantucket, stands accountable. The worthy Obed tells us that in the early times of the whale fishery, ere ships were regularly launched in pursuit of the game, the people of that island erected lofty spars along the seacoast, to which the lookouts ascended by means of nailed cleats, something as fowls go upstairs in a henhouse. A few years ago, this same plan was adopted by the bay whalemen of New Zealand, who, upon descrying the game, gave notice to the ready-manned boats nigh the beach. But this custom has now become obsolete. Turn we then to the one proper masthead, that of a whale ship at sea. The three mastheads are kept manned from sunrise to sunset, the seamen taking their regular turns, as at the helm, and relieving each other every two hours. In the serene weather of the tropics, it is exceedingly pleasant, the masthead. Nay, to a dreamy meditative man, it is delightful. There you stand, a hundred feet above the silent decks, striding along the deep as if the masts were gigantic stilts, while beneath you and between your legs, as it were, swim the hugest monsters of the sea, even as ships once sailed between the boots of the famous colossus at old Rhodes there you stand lost in the infinite series of the sea with nothing ruffled but the waves the tranced ship indolently rolls the drowsy trade winds blow everything resolves you into languor for the most part in this tropical whaling life a sublime uneventfulness invests you You hear no news, read no gazettes, extras with startling accounts of commonplaces never delude you into unnecessary excitements. You hear of no domestic afflictions, bankrupt securities, fall of stocks, are never troubled with the thought of what you shall have for dinner. For all your meals for three years and more are snugly stowed in casks, and your bill of fare is immutable. In one of those southern whalesmen, on a long three or four years voyage, as often happens, the sum of the various hours you spend at the masthead would amount to several entire months. And it is much to be deplored that the place to which you devote so considerable a portion of the whole term of your natural life should be so sadly destitute of anything approaching to a cozy inhabitiveness, or adapted to breed a comfortable localness of feeling, such as pertains to a bed, A hammock a hearse a sentry box a pulpit a coach or any of those small and snug contrivances in which men temporarily isolate themselves your most unusual point of perch is the head of the tagallant mast where you stand upon two thin parallel sticks almost peculiar to whalemen called the tagallant cross trees here tossed about by the sea the beginner feels about as cozy as he would standing on a bull's horns To be sure, in cold weather you may carry your house aloft with you in the shape of a watchcoat, but, properly speaking, the thickest watchcoat is no more of a house than the unclad body, for, as the soul is glued inside of its fleshy tabernacle and cannot freely move about in it, nor even move out of it without running great risk of perishing, like an ignorant pilgrim crossing the snowy Alps in winter, so a watchcoat is not so much of a house as it is a mere envelope an additional skin encasing you. You cannot put a shelf or chest of drawers on your body, and no more can you make a convenient closet of your watchcoat. Concerning all this, it is much to be deplored that the mastheads of a southern whale ship are unprovided with those enviable little tents or pulpits called crow's nests, in which the lookouts of a Greenland whaler are protected from the inclement weather of the frozen seas. In the fireside narrative of Captain Sleet, entitled A Voyage Among the Icebergs in Quest of the Greenland Whale, and incidentally for the rediscovery of the lost Icelandic colonies of Old Greenland. In this admirable volume, all standards of mastheads are furnished with a charmingly circumstantial account of the then recently invented Crow's Nest of the Glacier, which was the name of Captain Sleet's good craft. He called it the Sleet's Crow's Nest in honor of himself. He being the original inventor and patentee, and free from all ridiculous false delicacy, and holding that if we call our own children after our own names, we fathers being the original inventors and patentees, so likewise should we denominate after ourselves any other apparatus we may beget. In shape, the sleet's crow's nest is something like a large tierce or pipe. It is open above, however, where it is furnished with a movable side screen to keep to windward of your head in a hard gale. Being fixed to the summit of the mast, you ascend to it through a little trap hatch in the bottom. On the after side, or side next to the stern of the ship, is a comfortable seat with a locker underneath for umbrellas, comforters, and coats. In front is a leather rack in which to keep your speaking trumpet, pipe, telescope, and other nautical conveniences. When Captain Sleet in person stood his masthead in the crow's nest of his, he tells us that he always had a rifle with him, also fixed in the rack together with a powder flask, and shot for the purpose of popping off the stray narwhals, or vagrant sea unicorns, infesting those waters. For you cannot successfully shoot at them from the deck owing to the resistance of the water, but to shoot down upon them is a very different thing. Now it was plainly a labor of love for Captain Sleet to describe, as he does, all the little detailed conveniences of his crow's nest, but though he so enlarges upon many of these, and though he treats us to a very scientific account of his experiments in this crow's nests, with a small compass he kept there for the purpose of counteracting the errors resulting from what he called the local attraction of all the binnacle magnets, an error ascribable to the horizontal velocity of the iron in the ship's planks, and in the glacier's case, perhaps, to there having been so many broken-down blacksmiths among her crew, I say that Though the captain is very discreet and scientific here, yet for all his learned binnacle deviations, azimuth compass observations, and approximate errors, he knows very well, Captain Sleet, that he was not so much immersed in those profound magnetic meditations as to fail being attracted occasionally towards that well replenished little case bottle, so nicely tucked in one side of his crow's nest, within easy reach. Of his hand though upon the whole i greatly admire and even love the brave the honest and learned captain yet i take it very ill of him that he should so utterly ignore that case bottle seeing what a faithful friend and comforter it must have been while with mittened fingers and hooded head he was studying the mathematics aloft there in that bird's nest within three or four perches of the pole But if we southern whale fishers are not so snugly housed aloft as Captain Sleet and his Greenlandmen were, yet that disadvantage is greatly counterbalanced by the widely contrasting serenity of those seductive seas in which we south fishers mostly float. For one, I used to lounge up the rigging very leisurely, resting in the top to have a chat with Queequeg, or anyone else off-duty whom I might find there, then ascending a little way farther and throwing a lazy leg over the topsail yard, take a preliminary view of the watery pastures and so at last mount to my ultimate destination. Let me make a clean breast of it here, and frankly admit that I kept but sorry guard. With the problem of the universe revolving in me, how could I, being left completely to myself at such a thought-engendering altitude, how could I but lightly hold my obligations to observe all whale ships' standing orders? Keep a weather eye open and sing out every time! And let me in this place movingly admonish you, ye shipowners of Nantucket, beware of enlisting in your vigilant fisheries any lad with lean brow and hollow eye, given to unseasonable meditativeness, and who offers to the ship with the Phaedon instead of Bauditch in his head. Beware of such an one, I say, your whales must be seen before they can be killed, and this sunken-eyed young Platonist will tow you ten wakes round the world and never make you one pint of sperm the richer. Nor are these munitions at all unneeded, for nowadays the whale fishery furnishes an asylum for many romantic, melancholy, and absent-minded young men, disgusted with the carking cares of earth and seeking sentiment in tar and blubber. Child Harold not unfrequently perches himself upon the masthead of some luckless, disappointed whale-ship, and in moody phrase ejaculates, Roll on, thou deep and dark blue ocean, roll ten thousand blubber hunters sweep over thee in vain. Very often do the captains of such ships take these absent minded young philosophers to task, abrading them with not feeling sufficient interest in the voyage, half hinting that they are so hopelessly lost to all honorable ambition as that in their secret souls they would rather not see whales than otherwise but all in vain. Those young Platonists have a notion that their vision is imperfect. They are short-sighted. What use, then, to strain the visual nerve? They have left their opera glasses at home. Why, thou monkey, said a harpooner to one of those lads, we've been cruising now hard upon three years, and thou hast not raised a whale yet. Whales are scarce as hen's teeth whenever thou art up here. Perhaps they were, or perhaps there might have been shoals of them in the far horizon, but lulled into such an opium-like listlessness of vacant unconscious reverie, is this absent-minded youth by the blending cadence of waves with thoughts, that at last he loses his identity, takes the mystic ocean at his feet for the visible image of that deep, blue, bottomless soul pervading mankind and nature and every strange, half-seen, gliding, beautiful thing that eludes him, every dimly discovered, uprising fin of some indiscernible form seems to him the embodiment of those elusive thoughts that only people the soul by continually flitting through it. In this enchanted mood thy spirit ebbs away to whence it came, becomes diffused through time and space, like Cranmer's sprinkled pantheistic ashes forming at last a part of every shore the round globe over. There is no life in thee now, except that rocking life imparted by a gently rolling ship, by her, borrowed from the sea, by the sea from the inscrutable tides of God. But while this sleep, this dream is on ye, move your foot, or hand an inch. Slip your hold at all, and your identity comes back in horror. Over Descartian vortices you hover. And perhaps, at midday, in the fairest weather, with one half-throttled shriek, you drop through that transparent air into the summer sea, no more to rise forever. Heed it well, ye pantheists. Chapter 36. The Quarterdeck. Enter Ahab then all it was not a great while after the affair of the pipe that one morning shortly after breakfast ahab as was his wont, ascended the cabin gangway to the deck there most sea captains usually walk at that hour as country gentlemen after the same meal take a few turns in the garden soon his steady ivory stride was heard as to and fro he paced his old rounds upon planks so familiar to his tread that they were all over dented like geological stones with a peculiar mark of his walk. Did you fixedly gaze too upon that ribbed and dented brow, there also you would see still stranger footprints, the footprints of his one unsleeping, ever-pacing thought. But on the occasion in question those dents looked deeper, even as his nervous step that morning left a deeper mark. And so full of his thought was Ahab that at every uniform turn that he made, now at the mainmast, now at the binnacle, you could almost see that thought turn in him as he turned, and pace in him as he paced, so completely possessed him, indeed, that it all but seemed the inward mold of every outer movement. "'The American Flask,' whispered Stubb, "'the chick that's in him pecks the shell. 'T'll soon be out.' The hours wore on ahab now shut up within his cabin anon pacing the deck with the same intense bigotry of purpose in his aspect it drew near the close of day suddenly he came to halt by the bulwarks and inserting his bone leg into the auger hole there and with one hand grasping a shroud he ordered starbuck to send everybody aft sir said the mate Astonished at an order seldom or never given on shipboard, except in some extraordinary case. Send everybody aft, repeated Ahab. Mastheads there and come down. When the entire ship's company were assembled, and with curious and not wholly unapprehensive faces were eyeing him, for he looked not unlike the weather horizon when a storm is coming in, Ahab, after rapidly glancing over the bulwarks and then darting his eyes among the crew, started from his standpoint, and, as though not a soul were nigh him, resumed his heavy turns upon the deck. With bent head and half-slouched hat he continued to pace, unmindful of the wondering whispering among the men, till Stubb cautiously whispered to Flask that Ahab must have summoned them there for the purpose of witnessing a pedestrian feat. But this did not last long. Vehemently pausing, he cried, "'What do you do when you see a whale, men?' "'Sing out for him!' was the impulsive rejoinder from a score of clubbed voices. "'Good!' cried Ahab, with a wild approval in his tones, observing the hearty animation to which his unexpected question had so magnetically thrown them. "'And what do you do next, men?' Lower away and after him!' "'And what tune is it you pull to, men?' "'A dead whale or a stove-boat!' More and more strangely, and fiercely glad and approving, grew the countenance of the old man at every shout, while the mariners began to gaze curiously at each other, as if marveling at how it was that they themselves became so excited at such seemingly purposeless questions. But they were all eagerness again, as Ahab, now half-revolving in his pivot-hole, with one hand reaching high up a shroud, and tightly, almost convulsively grasping it, addressed them thus, all ye mastheaders have before now heard me give orders about a white whale. Look ye, do ye see this Spanish ounce of gold? Holding up a broad, bright coin to the sun. It's a $16 piece, man, do you see it? Mr. Starbuck, hand me yon topmall. While the mate was getting the hammer, Ahab, without speaking, was slowly rubbing the gold piece against the skirts of his jacket, as if to heighten its luster and without using any words, was meanwhile lowly humming to himself, producing a sound so strangely muffled and inarticulate that it seemed the mechanical humming of the wheels of his vitality in him. Receiving the top mall from Starbuck, he advanced toward the mainmast with a hammer uplifted in one hand, exhibiting the gold with the other, and with a high raised voice exclaiming, Whosoever of ye raises me a white-headed whale with a wrinkled brow and a crooked jaw, whosoever of ye raises me that white-headed whale with three holes punctured in him in a starboard fluke, look ye, whatsoever of ye raises me that same whale, he shall have this gold ounce, my boys. Huzzah! Huzzah! Cried the seamen as with swinging tarpaulins, they hailed the act of nailing the gold to the mast. It's a white whale, I say, resumed Ahab as he threw down the topmall. A white whale! Skin your eyes for a men! Look sharp for white water! If you see but a bubble, sing out! All this while Tashtigo, Dago, and Queequeg had looked on with even more intense interest and surprise than the rest, and at the mention of the wrinkled brow and crooked jaw they had started as if each was separately touched by some specific recollection. Captain Ahab, said Tashtego, that white whale must be the same that some call Moby Dick. Moby Dick, shouted Ahab, do you know the white whale then, Tash? Does he have a fan tail? a little curious, sir, before he goes down, said the gay header deliberately. And he has a curious spout, too, said Dago, very bushy, even for a parmaceti, and mighty quick, Captain Ahab. And he have one, two, three, oh, good many iron in him hide, too, captain, cried Queequeg disjointedly. Oh, twisky, be twisk like him, him, faltering hard for a word and screwing his hand round and round as though in corking a bottle. Like him, him, corkscrew, cried Ahab, eh, Queequeg, the harpoons lie all twisted and wrenched in him, eh, Dago, his spout is a big one, like a whole shock of wheat, and white is a pile of our Nantucket wool and a great annual sheep shearing. Ay, Tashtigo, and he fantails like a split jib in a squall. Death and devil's men, it is Moby Dick Ye have seen. Moby Dick, Moby Dick. Captain Ahab, said Starbuck, who, with stub and flask, had thus far been eyeing his superior with increasing surprise, but at last seemed struck with a thought which somewhat explained all the wonder. Captain Ahab, I have heard of Moby Dick, but was it not Moby Dick that took off thy leg? Who told thee that, cried Ahab, then pausing, Eh, Starbuck, eh, my heart, he's all round, it was Moby Dick that dismasted me. Moby-Dick that brought me to this dead stump I stand on now. Ay! Ay! He shouted with a terrific, loud animal sob like that of a heart-stricken moose. Ay! Ay! It was that accursed white whale that raised me, made a poor pegging lubber of me forever and a day. Then, tossing both arms with measureless imprecations, he shouted out, "'Hey! Hey! And I'll chase him round, good hope, and round the horn, and round the Norway maelstrom, and round perdition's flames before I give him up. And this is what ye have shipped for, men, to chase that white whale on both sides of land, and over all sides of earth, till he spouts black blood and rolls fin out. What say ye, men? Will ye splice hands on it now? I think ye do look brave!' "'Hey! Hey!' shouted the harpooners and seamen, running closer to the excited old man. "'A sharp eye for the white whale! A sharp lance for Moby Dick!' "'God bless ye!' he seemed to half sob and half shout. "'God bless ye, Ben! Steward! Go and draw a great measure of grog! "'But what's this long face about, Mr. Starbuck? "'Wilt thou not chase the white whale? Art thou not game for Moby Dick?' "'I am game for his crooked jaw, and for the jaws of death too, Captain Ahab, "'if it fairly comes in the way of the business we follow. "'But I came here for to hunt whales, not my commander's vengeance. "'How many barrels will thy vengeance yield thee, even if thou girdest it, Captain Ahab? "'It will not fetch thee much in our Nantucket market.' "'Nantucket market! (laughs) (laughs) "'But come closer, Starbuck. There requires a little lower layer.' If money's to be the measurer of man, and the accountants have computed their great counting house, the globe, by girding it with guineas, one to every three parts of an inch, then let me tell thee that my vengeance will fetch a great premium. Here is my chest," whispered Stubb. What's that for? Methinks it rings most vast but hollow. Vengeance on a dumb brute, cried Starbuck. That simply smote thee from blindest instinct, madness. To be enraged with a dumb thing, Cap Nahab, seems blasphemous. Hark ye yet again, the little lower layer. All visible objects, man, are but as pasteboard masks. But in each event, in the living act, the undoubted deed, there some unknown but still reasoning thing puts forth the mouldings of its features from behind the unreasoning mask. If man will strike, strike through the mask. How can the prisoner reach outside except by thrusting through the wall? To me, the white whale is that wall shoved near me. Sometimes I think there's not beyond, but tis enough. He tasks me, he heaps me. I see in him outrageous strength, with an inscrutable malice sinewing it. That inscrutable thing is chiefly what I hate. And be the white whale agent, or be the white whale principal, I will wreak that hate upon him. Talk not to me, you blasphemy man. I'd strike the sun if it insulted me. For could the sun do that? Then could I do the other, since there is ever a sort of fair play herein, jealousy presiding over all creations. But not my masterman is ever the fair play. Who's over me? Truth hath no confines. Take off thine eye. More intolerable than fiend's glarings is the doltish stare. So, so, thou reddenest and palest. My heat has melted thee to anger glow. But look ye, Starbuck. What is said in heat? That thing unsays itself. There are men from whom warm words are small in dignity. I mean to incense them. Let it go. Look, yonder Turkish cheeks of spotted tawn, living, breathing pictures painted by the sun, the pagan leopards, the unreaking, unworshipping things that live and seek and give no reasons for the torrid life they feel. The crew man, the crew are they not one in all with Ahab in this matter of the whale? See, Stub, he laughs See, yonder Chilean, he snorts to think of it. Send up amid the general hurricane thy one tossed sapling cannot Starbuck And what is it? Reckon it Tis but to help strike a fin no wondrous feat for Starbuck What is more? From this one poor hunt, then, the best lance out of all Nantucket, surely he will not hang back. When every foremast hand has clutched a whetstone, ah, constraining, seize thee. I see the billow lifts thee. Speak, but speak, hey, hey, thy silence, then, that voice is thee. Something shot from my dilated nostrils, he has inhaled it in his lungs. Starbuck now is mine, cannot oppose me now without rebellion. God keep me. <laughs> Keep us all, murmured Starbuck, lowly. But in his joy at the enchanted, tacit acquiescence of his mate, Ahab did not hear his foreboding invocation, nor yet the presaging vibrations of the winds in the cordage, nor yet the hollow flap of the sails against the masts, as for a moment their hearts sank in. For again Starbuck's downcast eyes lightened up with the stubbornness of life, The subterranean laugh died away, the winds blew on, the sails filled out, the ship heaved and rolled as before. Ah, ye admonitions and warnings, why stay ye not when you come? But rather, are ye predictions than warnings, ye shadows? Yet not so much predictions from without as verifications of the foregoing things within. For with little external to constrain us the innermost necessities of our being, these still drive us on. THE MEASURE! THE MEASURE! cried Ahab. Receiving the brimming pewter and turning to the harpooners, he ordered them to produce their weapons. Then, ranging before him near the capstan with their harpoons in their hands while his three mates stood at his side with their lances and the rest of the ship's company formed a circle round the group, he stood for an instant, searchingly, eyeing every man of his crew. But those wild eyes met his, as the bloodshot eyes of the prairie wolves meet the eye of their leader, ere he rushes on at their head in the trail of the bison, but, alas, only to fall to the hidden snare of the Indian. Drink and pass, he cried, handing the heavy-charged flagon to the nearest seaman. The crew alone, now drink! Round with it, round! Short drafts, long swallows, men! Tis hot as Satan's hoof! so so it goes round excellently it spirals in ye forks out at the serpent snapping eye well done almost drained the way it went the way it comes hand it me there's a hollow men ye seem the years so brimming life is gulped and gone steward refill attend now my braves I have mustered ye all round this capstan, and ye mates, flank me with your lances, and ye harpooners, stand here with your irons, and ye stout mariners, ring me in, that I may in some sort revive a noble custom of my fisherman fathers before me. O men, will ye see that? Ha! Boy, come back! Bad pennies come not sooner, hand it me! Why now, this pewter had run brimming again, wert not thou St. Vicious imp? Away thou, Ache Advance, ye mates! Cross your lances full before me! Well done! Let me touch the axis! So saying, with an extended arm, he grasped the three level radiating lances at their crossed center, while so doing suddenly and nervously twitching them, meanwhile glancing intently from starbuck to stub, from stub to flask. It seemed as though, by some nameless interior volition, he would fain have shocked them into the same fiery emotion accumulated within the laden jar of his own magnetic life. The three mates quailed before his strong, sustained, and mystic aspect. Stub and Flask looked sideways from him. The honest eye of Starbuck fell downright. In vain, cried Ahab, but maybe tis well, for did ye three but once take the full force shock, then mine own electric thing, that... Had perhaps expired from out me perchance too it would have dropped ye dead perchance ye need it not down lances and now ye mates i do appoint ye three cupbearers to my three pagan kinsmen there yon three most honorable gentlemen and noblemen my valiant harpooners disdain the task what when the great pope washes the feet of beggars using his tiara for a ewer oh my sweet cardinals you own condescension that shall bend ye to it I DO NOT ORDER YE, YE WILL IT. CUT YOUR seizings AND DRAW THE POLES, YE harpooniers. SILENTLY OBEYING THE ORDER, THE THREE harpooniers NOW STOOD WITH THE DETACHED IRON PART OF THEIR HARPOONS, SOME THREE FEET LONG HELD BARBS UP BEFORE HIM. STAB ME NOT WITH THAT KEEN STEEL. CANT THEM, CANT THEM OVER. KNOW ye NOT THE GOBLET END? TURN UP THE SOCKET. SO, SO, NOW, YE CUPBEARERS, ADVANCE. THE IRONS, TAKE THEM, HOLD THEM WHILE I FILL. Forthwith, slowly going from one officer to the other, he brimmed the harpoon sockets with the fiery waters from the pewter. Now, three to three, ye sand, commend the murderous chalices. Bestow them, ye who are now made parties to the indissoluble league. Ha! Starbuck! But the deed is done. Yon ratifying sun now waits to sit upon it. Drink, ye harpooners, drink, and swear, ye men, that man the dreadful whaleboats bow. Death to Moby Dick! God hunt us all, if we do not hunt Moby Dick to his death. The long barbed steel goblets were lifted, and to cries and maledictions against the white whale, the spirits were simultaneously quaffed down with a hiss. Starbuck paled, and turned, and shivered. Once more, and finally, the replenished pewter went the rounds among the frantic crew, when, waving his free hand to them, they all dispersed, and Ahab retired within his cabin. Chapter 37 sunset the cabin by the stern windows ahab sitting alone and gazing out i leave a white and turbid wake pale waters paler cheeks where'er i sail the envious billows sidelong swell to whelm my track let them but first i pass yonder by ever brimming goblets rim the warm waves blush like wine the gold brow plums the blue the diver sun, slow dive from noon, goes down. My soul mounts up. She wearies from her endless hill. Is, then, the crown too heavy that I wear, this iron crown of Lombardy? Yes, it is bright with many a gem. I, the wearer, see not its fair flashings, but darkly feel that I wear that, that dazzlingly confounds. Tis iron, that I know, not gold. "'Tis to split, too, that I feel. "'The jagged edge galls me so, "'my brain seems to beat against the solid metal, a eh? steel skull mine, "'the sword that needs no helmet "'in the most brain-battering fight. "'Dry heat upon my brow? "'Oh! "'Time was when the sunrise nobly spurred me, "'so the sunset soothed. "'No more. "'This lovely light it lights not me, all loveliness is anguish to me, since I can ne'er enjoy. Gifted with the high perception, I lack the low, enjoying power damned, most subtly and most malignantly damned in the midst of paradise. Good night, good night. Waving his hand, he moves from the window. Twas not so hard a task, I thought, to find one stubborn at the least, but my one-cogged circle fits into all their various wheels, and they revolve. Or, if you will, like so many anthills of powder, they all stand before me, and I their match. Oh, hard, that to fire others the match must itself needs be wasting. What I've dared, I've willed, and what I've willed I'll do. They think me mad, Starbuck does, but I'm demoniac. I am madness maddened. That wild madness, that's the only calm to comprehend itself. The prophecy was that I should be dismembered, and aye hey, I lost this leg. I now prophesy that I will dismember my dismemberer. Now then, be the prophet and the fulfiller one. That's more that ye, ye great gods, ever were. I laugh and hoot at ye, ye cricket players, ye pugilists, ye deaf burks and blinded bendigos. I will not say as schoolboys do to bullies. Take some of what your own size. Don't pummel me. No, ye've knocked me down, and I'll come up again. But ye have run and hidden. Come forth from behind your cotton bags. I've not long gun to reach ye. Come, Ahab's compliments to ye. Come and see if ye can swerve me. Swerve me! Ye cannot swerve me, else you can swerve yourselves. Man has ye there. Swerve me. The path to my fixed purpose is laid with iron rails, whereon my soul is grooved to run over unsounded gorges through the rifle-hearts of the mountains, under torrents' beds unerringly I rush. nots an obstacle, knots an angle to the iron way. Chapter 38. Dusk. By the mainmast, Starbuck leaning against it. My soul is more than matched, she's overmanned. And by a madman, insufferable sting that sanity should ground arms on such a field, but he drilled deep down and blasted all my reason out of me. I think I see his impious end, but I feel that I must help him to it. Will I? Nil I. The ineffable thing has tied me to him. Toes me with a cable. I have no knife to cut. Horrible old man. Who's over him? He cries. "Ay, hey, he would be a Democrat to all above. Look at how he lords it over all below. Oh, I plainly see my miserable office. To obey, rebelling, and worse yet, to hate with a touch of pity. For in his eyes I read some lurid woe would shrivel me up, had I it. Yet is there hope. Time and tide flow wide. The hated whale has the round, watery world to swim in, as the small goldfish has his glassy globe. His heaven-insulting purpose. God may wedge aside. I would up hot, were it not like lead. But my whole clock's run down. My heart, the all-controlling weight, I have no key to lift again. A burst of revelry from the forecastle. Oh God! The sail was such a heathen crew that have small touch of human mothers in them. Whelped somewhere by the shockish sea. The white whale is the demigorgon Hark! The infernal orgies! That revelry is forward! Mock the unfaltering silence aft. Methinks it pictures life. Foremost through the sparkling sea shoots on the gay. Embattled bantering bow. But only to drag dark Ahab after it. Where he broods within his sternward cabin. Builded over with the dead water of the wake. And further on hunted by its wolfish gurglings. The long howl thrills me through. Peace ye revelers. And set the watch. O oh, life. "'Tis in an hour like this, with soul beat down and held to knowledge, "'as wild, untutored things are forced to feed. "'O life! "'Tis now that I do feel the latent horror in thee. "'But tis not me. "'That horror's out of me, and with soft feeling of the human in me. "'Yet I will try to fight ye, ye grim, phantom futures. "'Stand by me, hold me, bind me, O ye blessed influences. Chapter 39 First Night Watch Foretop Stub SOLUS and Mending a Brace. Ha 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 Clear my throat! I've been thinking it over ever since, and that ha ha, that's the final consequence. Why so? Because of the laughs, the wisest, easiest answer to all that's queer. And come what will, one comfort's always left. That unfailing comfort is, it's all predestined. I heard not all his talk with Starbuck, but to my poor eye, Starbuck then looked something as I the other evening felt. But sure, the old mogul has fixed him too. I twigged it, knew it, had I had the gift. Might readily have prophesied it. But when I caught my eye upon his skull, I saw it. Well, stub, wise stub, that's my title. Well, stub, what of it, stub? Here's a carcase. I know not mm. all what well, may be coming, but be it what it will, I'll go to it laughing. It's such a waggish leering as it lurks in your, all your horribles. I feel funny, Fala Lira Skira What's my juicy little pair at home doing now? Crying its eyes out Giving a party to the last arriving harponiers, I dare say. Gay as a frigate's pennant, and so am I, Fala lira, Skira ho We'll drink tonight with hearts as light, to love as gay and fleeting, As bubbles that swim on the beaker's brim and break on a lips while meeting. Brave stave that. Who calls? Mr Starbuck, hey, hey sir. He's my superior, he has his too, if I'm not mistaken. Hey, hey, sir, just through with this job, come in. Chapter 40. Midnight. Forecastle. Harpooners and sailors. Foresell rises and discovers the watch standing, lounging, leaning, and lying in various attitudes, all singing in chorus. Farewell and adieu to you, Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu, you ladies of Spain. Our captains commanded. First Nantucket sailor. Oh, boys, don't be sentimental. It's bad for the digestion. Take a tonic. Follow me. Sings and all follows. Ah, captain stood upon the deck, a spyglass in his hand, a viewing of those gallant whales that blew at every strand. Oh, your tubs and your boats, my boys, and your braces stand, and we'll have one of those fine whales, hand, boys, over hand. So be cheery, my lads, may your hearts never fail, while the bold harpooner is striking the whale. Mate's voice from the quarter deck. Eight bells there, forward! Second Nantucket sailors. Avas, The chorus! Eight bells there! Do you hear, bellboy? Strike the bell! Eight! Thou pip! Thou blackling! And let me call the watch! I've the sort of mouth for that! The hogshead mouth! So, so! Thrusts his head down the scuttle. Starbolines! Ahoy! Eight bells there, below! Tumble up! Dutch sailor. Grand snoozing tonight, matey. I mark this out in our old mogul's vine. It's quite as deadening as some as philipping to others. We sing, they sleep. Eh? Hey, lie down there, like grand here, butts. At em again. There, take this copper pump and hail em through it. Tell em a vast dreaming of their lassies. Tell them the resurrection. They must kiss their last and come up to judgment. That's the way? That's it? Their throat ain't spoiled with eating Amsterdam butter. French sailor. hist boys. Let's have a jig or two before we ride to anchor in Blanket Bay. What say ye? There comes the other watch. Stand by our legs. Pip, little Pip, hurrah, with your tambourine. Pip. Silky and sleepy. Don't know where it is. French sailor. Beat thy belly, then, and wag thy ears. Jig men, I say, is the word. Hurrah! Damn me, won't you dance? Form now, Indian file, and gallop into the double shuffle. Throw your legs, legs, legs! Icelandic sailor. I don't like your floor, matey. It's too springy for my taste. I'm used to ice floors. I'm sorry to throw cold water on the subject, but excuse me. Maltese sailor. Me too. Where's your girls? Ooh, but a fool would take his left hand by his right and say to himself, how do you do? Partners, I must have partners. Sicilian sailor. Hey, girls in the green, then I'll hop with ye. Yay, turn grasshopper. hopper. Long Island sailor. Well, well, ye sulkies, there's plenty more of us. Whole corn where ye may, say I. All legs go to harvest soon. Ah, here comes the music. Now for it. Azor sailor. Ascending and pitching the tambourine up the scuttle. Here you are Pip, and there's the windlass bits up your mount now, boys. The half of them dance to the tambourine. Some go below. Some sleep or lie among the coils of rigging. Oaths of plenty. Azor sailor dancing. Go it, Pip. Bang it, bell boy. Ring it, dig it, stick it, quig it, Bellboy! Make fireflies. Break the dinglers. Pip, dinglers you say? There goes another dropped off. I'll pound it so. China sailor. Rattle thy teeth, then, and pound away. Make a pagoda of thyself. French sailor. Merry maid, hold up the hoop-pip till I jump through it. Split jibs, stay yourselves. Tash Tigo. Quietly smoking. That's a white man. He calls that fun? (laughs) I'll save my sweat. Old Manx sailor. I wonder whether those jolly lads bethink them of what they are dancing over. I'll dance over your grave, I will. That's the bitterest threat of your night women that beat headwinds round corners. Oh Christ! To think of the green navies and the green skulled crews. Why, well, well, belike the whole world's a ball, as your scholars have it, and so 'tis right to make one balloon of it. Dance on, lads. You're young. I was once, third Nantucket sailor. Spell. Oh, well, this is worse than pulling after whales in a calm. Give us a whiff, tash. They cease dancing and gather in clusters. Meantime, the sky darkens, the wind rises. Lascar sailor. By Brahma, boys, it'll douse sail soon. The sky-born high-tide Ganges turned up to wind. Thou showest thy black brow, Siva. Maltese sailor, reclining and shaking his cap. It's the waves. The snow's caps turned to jig it now. They'll shake their tassels soon. Now would all the waves were women, then I'd go drown and chase sea with them evermore. There's not so sweet on earth, heaven may not match it, As those swift glances of warm, wild bosoms in the dance, When the over-arboring arms hide such ripe, bursting grapes. Sicilian sailor, reclining, Tell me not of it, hark, ye lad, Fleet interlacings of the limbs, Lides, swings, coings, flutterings, Lip, heart, hip, all graze, unceasing touch, And go, not taste, observe, ye, else comes satiety. Eh, pagan? Nudging, Tahitian sailor, reclining on a mat. Hail, holy nakedness of our dancing girls, the Heva Heva, ah, low-veiled, high-palmed Tahiti. I still rest me on thy mat, but the soft soil has slid. I saw thee woven in the wood, my mat, green the first day I brought thee hence, now worn and wilted quite. Ah, me, not thou nor I bear the change." How then, if so be transplanted to yon sky, hear I the roaring streams from Pirohiti's peak of spears when they leap down the crags and drown the villages. The blast, the blast, up spine and meet it, leaps to his feet. Portuguese sailor, how the sea rolls, swashing gainst the side. Stand by for reefing, hardies, the winds are just crossing swords. Pell-mell, they go lunging presently. Danish sailor, crack, crack, old ship, so long as thou crackest, thou holdest. "'Well done. The mate there holds ye to it stiffly. "'He's no more afraid than the isle-fort at Cutgut, "'put there to fight the Baltic with storm-lashed guns "'on which the sea salt cakes.'" Fourth Nantucket sailor. "'He has his orders, mind ye that. "'I heard old Ahab tell me he must always kill a squall, "'something as they burst a water-spout with a pistol. "'Fire your ship right into it.'" English sailor. "'Bud, but the old man's a grand old cove.' We are the lads to hunt him up this whale. All. ay, hey, ay, hey. Old Manx Sailor. How the three pines shake! Pines are the hardest sort of tree to live when shifted in any other soil. And here there's none but the crew's cursed clay. Steady helmsman, steady! This is the sort of weather when brave hearts snap ashore and keeled hulls split at sea. Our captain has his birthmark. Look yonder, boys, there's another in the sky. Lurid-like. You see, all else is pitch black. Dago. What of that? Who's afraid of blacks afraid of me? I'm quarried out of it. Spanish sailor. Aside. You want to bully, eh? The old grudge makes me touchy. Advancing, eh, hey, harpoonier, thy race is the undeniable dark side of mankind, devilish dark at that. Uh, no offence. Dago, grimly, none. St. Jago's sailor, that Spaniard's mad, or drunk. But that can't be, or else, in his one case, our old mogul's fire waters are somewhat long in working. Fifth Nantucket sailor, what's that I saw? Lightning? Yes! Spanish sailor, no Dago, showing his teeth, Dago, springing, swallow thine mannequin, white skin, white liver, Spanish sailor, meeting him, knife thee, hotly, big frame, small spirits, all a row, a row, a row, Tigo with a whiff, a row, allow, and row aloft, gods and men, both brawlers. <laughs> Belfast sailor, a ah, a The Virgin be blessed, a Plunge in with ye, English sailor. Fair play! Snatch the Spaniard's knife, a ring, a ring. Old Manx sailor, ready formed there, the ringed horizon. In that ring, Cain struck Abel. Sweet work, right work? No. Why then, God mates thou the ring? Mate's voice from the quarter deck. Hands by the Hollyads and top gallant sails Stand by to reef top sails All The Squall The Squall Jump my jollies They scatter Pip shrinking under the windlass Jollies Lord help such jollies Crish crash there goes the jib-stay! blang wang God duck lower Pip here comes the royal yard It's worse than being in the world woods the last day of the year who'd go climbing after chestnuts now But there they go, all cursing, and here I don't find prospects to to 'em they're on the road to heaven hold on hard jiminy what a squall but those chaps they're the worst yet they're your white squalls they white squalls white whale shoo shoo here have I heard all their chat just now, and the white whale, shh, but spoken of once, and only this evening, it makes me jingle all over like my tambourine, that anaconda of an old man swore in him to hunt him. Oh, thou big white god aloft with somewhere in yon darkness, have mercy on this small black boy down here, preserved him from all men that have no bowels to feel fear. Chapter 41 Moby Dick I, Ishmael, was one of that crew. My shouts had gone up with the rest. My oath had been welded with theirs, and stronger, I shouted, and more did I hammer and clinch my oath because of the dread in my soul. A wild, mystical, sympathetical feeling was in me. Ahab's quenchless feud seemed mine. With greedy ears I learned the history of that murderous monster against whom I and all the others had taken our oaths of violence and revenge. For some time past, though at intervals only, The unaccompanied, secluded white whale had haunted those uncivilized seas most frequented by the sperm whale fishermen. But not all of them knew of his existence. Only a few of them, comparatively, had knowingly seen him, while the number who as yet had actually and knowingly given battle to him was small indeed. For owing to the large number of whale cruisers, the disorderly way they were sprinkled over the entire watery circumference, many of them adventurously pursuing their quest along solitary latitudes, so as seldom or never for a whole twelve-month or more on a stretch to encounter a single news-telling sail of any sort, the inordinate length of each separate voyage, the irregularity of the times of sailing from home, all these, with other circumstances direct and indirect, long obstructed the spread through the whole worldwide whaling fleet of the special individualizing tidings concerning Moby Dick. It was hardly to be doubted that several vessels reported to have encountered, at such-and-such such a time or on such-and-such such a meridian, a sperm whale of uncommon magnitude and malignity, which whale, after doing great mischief to his assailants, had completely escaped them. To some minds, it was not an unfair presumption. I say that the whale in question must have been no other than Moby Dick. Yet, as of late, the sperm whale fishery has been marked by various and not infrequent instances of great ferocity, cunning, and malice in the monster attacked. Therefore, it was that those who by accident ignorantly gave battle to Moby Dick, Such hunters, perhaps for the most part, were content to ascribe the peculiar terror he bred more, as it were, to the perils of the sperm-whale fishery at large than to the individual cause. In that way, mostly, the disastrous encounter between Ahab and the whale had hitherto been popularly regarded. As for those who, previously hearing of the white whale, by chance caught sight of him in the beginning of the thing, they had every one of them almost as boldly and fearlessly lowered for him as for any other whale of that species. But at length such calamities did ensue in these assaults, not restricted to sprained wrists and ankles, broken limbs, or devouring amputations, but fatal to the last degree of fatality, those repeated disastrous repulses, all accumulating and piling their terrors upon Moby Dick. Those things had gone far to shake the fortitude of many brave hunters to whom the story of the white whale had eventually come. Nor did wild rumours of all sorts fail to exaggerate and still more horrify the true histories of these deadly encounters. For, not only do fabulous rumors naturally grow out of the very body of all surprising terrible events as the smitten tree gives birth to its fungi, but in maritime life, far more than that of terra firma, wild rumors abound, wherever there is any adequate reality for them to cling to. And as the sea surpasses the land in this matter, so the whale fishery surpasses every other sort of maritime life, in the wonderfulness and fearfulness of the rumours which sometimes circulate there. For not only are whalemen as a body unexempt from that ignorance and superstitiousness hereditary to all sailors, but of all sailors they are by all odds the most directly brought into contact with whatever is appallingly astonishing in the sea. Face to face they not only eye its greatest marvels, but hand to jaw give battle to them. Alone in such remotest waters that though you sailed a thousand miles and passed a thousand shores you would not come to any chiseled hearthstone or aught hospitable beneath that part of the sun. In such latitudes and longitudes, pursuing too such a calling as he does, the whaleman is wrapped by influences all tending to make his fancy pregnant with many a mighty birth. No wonder, then, that ever-gathering volume from the mere transit over the widest watery spaces the outblown rumors of the white whale did in the end incorporate with themselves all manner of morbid hints and half-formed fetal suggestions of supernatural agencies, which eventually invested Moby Dick with new terrors unborrowed from anything that visibly appears. So that in many cases such a panic did he finally strike that few who by those rumors at least had heard of the white whale, few of those hunters were willing to encounter the perils of his jaw. But there were still other and more vital practical influences at work. Not even at the present day has the original prestige of the sperm whale, as fearfully distinguished from all other species of leviathan, died out in the minds of the whalemen as a body. There are those this day among them who, though intelligent and courageous enough in offering battle to the Greenland or right whale, would perhaps either from professional inexperience or incompetency or timidity decline a contest with the sperm whale. At any rate, there are plenty of whalemen, especially those among the whaling nations not sailing under the American flag, who have never hostilely encountered the sperm whale, but whose sole knowledge of the leviathan is restricted to the ignoble monster primitively pursued in the north. Seated on their hatches, these men will hearken with childish fireside interest and awe to the wild, strange tales of southern whaling." Nor is the preeminent tremendousness of the great sperm whale anywhere more feelingly comprehended than on board those prows which stem him. And as if the now-tested reality of his might had in former legendary times thrown its shadow before it, we find some book naturalists, Olassen and Povelson declaring the sperm whale not only to be a consternation to every other creature in the sea, but also to be so incredibly ferocious as continually to be a thirst for human blood. Nor even down to so late a time as Cuvier's were these or almost similar impressions effaced. For in his natural history, the Baron himself affirms that at the sight of the sperm whale, all fish, sharks included, are struck with the most lively terrors and often in the precipitancy of their flight dash themselves against the rocks with such violence as to cause instantaneous death. And, however the general experiences of the fishery may amend such reports as these, yet in their full terribleness, even the bloodthirsty item of Pavelson, the superstitious belief in them, is, in some vicissitudes of their vocation, revived in the minds of the hunters. So that, overawed by the rumours and portents concerning him, not a few of the fishermen recalled, in reference to Moby Dick, the earlier days of the sperm whale fishery, when it was oftentimes hard to induce long-practice right whalemen to embark in the perils of this new and daring warfare. Such men protesting that although other leviathans might be hopefully pursued, yet to chase and point Lance at such an apparition as the sperm whale was not for mortal man, that to attempt it, would be inevitably to be torn into quick eternity. On this head, there are some remarkable documents that may be consulted. Nevertheless, some there were who even in the face of these things were ready to give chase to Moby Dick, and a still greater number who, chancing only to hear of him distantly and vaguely, without the specific details of any certain calamity and without superstitious accompaniments, were sufficiently hardy not to flee from the battle if offered. One of the wild suggestions referred to, as at last coming to be linked with the white whale in the minds of the superstitiously inclined, was the unearthly conceit that Moby Dick was ubiquitous, that he had actually been encountered in opposite latitudes at one and the same instant of time. Nor, credulous as such minds must have been, was this conceit altogether without some faint show of superstitious probability. For as the secrets of the currents in the sea have never yet been divulged even to the most erudite research, so the hidden ways of the sperm whale when beneath the surface remain, in great part, unaccountable to his pursuers, and from time to time have originated the most curious and contradictory speculations regarding them, especially concerning the mystic modes whereby, after sounding to a great depth, he transports himself with such vast swiftness to the most widely distant points. It is a thing well known to both American and English whale ships, and as well a thing placed upon authoritative record years ago by Scoresby, that some whales have been captured far north in the Pacific, in whose bodies have been found the barbs and harpoons darted in the Greenland Seas. Nor is it to be gainsaid that in some of these instances it has been declared that the interval of time between the two assaults could not have exceeded very many days. Hence, by inference, it has been believed by some whalemen that the Nor'west Passage, so long a problem to man, was never a problem to the whale. So that here, in the real living experience of living men, the prodigies related in old times of the inland Strello mountain in Portugal, near whose top there was said to be a lake in which the wrecks of ships floated up to the surface, and that still more wonderful story of the Arethusa fountain near Syracuse whose waters were believed to have come from the Holy Land by an underground passage. These fabulous narrations are almost fully equaled by the realities of the whalemen. Forced into familiarity, then, with such prodigies as these, and knowing that after repeated, intrepid assaults the white whale had escaped alive, it cannot be much matter of surprise that some whalemen should go still further in their superstitions, declaring Moby Dick not only ubiquitous, but immortal, for immortality is but ubiquity in time, that, though groves of spears should be planted in his flanks, he would still swim away unharmed, or, if, indeed, he should ever be made to spout thick blood, such a sight would be but a ghastly deception, for, again, in ensanguinated billows hundreds of leagues away, his unsullied jet would once more be seen." But even stripped of these supernatural surmisings, there was enough of the earthly make and incontestable character of the monster to strike the imagination with unwanted power. For it was not so much his uncommon bulk that so much distinguished him from other sperm whales, but as was elsewhere thrown out, a peculiar snow-white wrinkled forehead and a high pyramidical white hump. These were his prominent features, the tokens whereby, even in the limitless, uncharted seas, he revealed his identity, at a long distance, to those who knew him. The rest of his body was so streaked and spotted and marbled with the same shrouded hue that, in the end, he had gained his distinctive appellation of the White Whale, a name, indeed, literally justified by his vivid aspect, when seen gliding at high noon through a dark and blue sea, leaving a milky way wake of creamy foam, all spangled with golden gleamings. Nor was it his unwanted magnitude, nor his remarkable hue, nor yet his deformed lower jaw that so much invested the whale with natural terror as that unexampled, intelligent malignity which, according to specific accounts, he had over and over again evinced in his assaults. More than all, his treacherous retreats struck more of dismay than perhaps aught else, for, when swimming before his exalting pursuers, with every apparent symptom of alarm, he had several times been known to turn round suddenly and bearing down upon them either stave their boats to splinters or drive them back in consternation to their ship. Already several fatalities had attended his chase. But those similar disasters, however little brooded ashore, were by no means unusual in the fishery, yet in most instances each seemed the white whale's infernal aforethought of ferocity that every dismembering or death that he caused was not wholly regarded as having been inflicted by an unintelligent agent." Judge, then, to what pitches of inflamed, distracted fury the minds of his more desperate hunters were impelled, when amid the chips of chewed boats and the sinking limbs of torn comrades they swam out of the white curds of the whale's direful wrath into the serene, exasperating sunlight that smiled on as if at a berth or a bridle. His three boats stove around him in oars and men whirling in the eddies, one captain— seizing the line knife from its broken prow had dashed at the whale as an arkansas duelist at his foe blindly seeking with a six-inch blade to reach the fathom deep life of the whale that captain was ahab and then it was that suddenly sweeping his sickle-shaped lower jaw below him moby dick had reaped away ahab's leg as a mower of a blade of grass in the field no turbaned turk No hired Venetian or Malay could have smote him with more seeming malice. Small reason was there to doubt then, that ever since that almost fatal encounter Ahab had cherished a wild vindictiveness against the whale. All the more fell, for that in his frantic morbidness he at last came to identify with him, not only all his bodily woes, but all his intellectual and spiritual exasperations. The white whale swam before him as the monomaniac incarnation of all those malicious agencies which some deep men feel eating in them till they are left living on with half a heart and half a lung that intangible malignity which has been from the beginning to whose dominion even the modern christians ascribe one half of the worlds which the ancient ophites of the east reverenced in their statue devil Ahab did not fall down and worship it like them, but deliriously transferring its idea to his abhorred white whale, he pitted himself, all mutilated, against it. All that most maddens and torments, all that stirs up the lees of things, all truth with malice in it, all that cracks the sinews and cakes the brain, all the subtle demonisms of life and thought, all evil, to crazy Ahab, were visibly personified and made practically assailable in Moby Dick. He piled upon the whale's white hump the sum of all the general rage and hate felt by his whole race from Adam down, and then, as if his chest had been a mortar, he burst his hot heart's shell upon it. It is not probable that this monomania in him took its instant rise at the precise time of his bodily dismemberment. Then, in darting at the monster knife in hand, he had but given loose to a sudden, passionate, corporal animosity, and when he received the stroke that tore him, he probably but felt the agonizing bodily laceration, but nothing more. Yet when by this collision forced to turn towards home and for long months of days and weeks ahab and anguish lay stretched together in one hammock rounding in midwinter that dreary howling patagonian cape then it was that his torn body and gnashed soul bled into one another and so interfusing made him mad That it was only then, on the homeward voyage, after the encounter that the final monomania seized him, seems all but certain from the fact that, at intervals during the passage, he was a raving lunatic, and though unlimbed of a leg, yet such vital strength yet lurked in his Egyptian chest, and was moreover intensified by his delirium, that his mates were forced to lace him fast, even there as he sailed, raving in his hammock, in a straitjacket he swung to the mad rockings of the gales and when running into more sufferable latitudes the ship with mild stunsils spread floated across the tranquil tropics and to all appearances the old man's delirium seemed left behind him with the cape horn swells and he came forth from his dark den into the blessed light and air Even then, when he bore that firm, collected front, however pale, and issued his calm orders once again, and his mates thanked God the direful madness was now gone, even then, Ahab in his hidden self raved on. Human madness is oftentimes a cunning and most feline thing. When you think it fled, it may have but become transfigured into some still subtler form. Ahab's full lunacy subsided not but deepeningly contracted, like the unabated Hudson, when that noble northman flows narrowly, but unfathomably, through the highland gorge. But as in his narrow-flowing monomania not one jot of Ahab's broad madness had been left behind, so in that broad madness not one jot of his great natural intellect had perished, that before living agent now became the living instrument, If such a furious trope may stand, his special lunacy stormed his general sanity, and carried it, and turned all its concentrated cannon upon his own mad mark, so that far from having lost his strength, Ahab to that one end did now possess a thousandfold more potency than ever he had sanely brought to bear upon any one reasonable object. This is much, yet Ahab's larger, darker, deeper part remains unhinted, but vain to popularize profundities and all truth is profound winding far down from within the very heart of this spiked hotel de cluny where we here stand however grand and wonderful now quit it and take your way ye nobler sadder souls to those vast roman halls of thermes where far beneath the fantastic towers of man's upper earth his root of grandeur his whole awful essence sits in bearded state an antique buried beneath antiquities and throned on torsos so with a broken throne the great gods mock that captive king so like a caryatid he patient sits upholding on his frozen brow the piled entablatures of ages wind ye down there ye prouder sadder souls question that proud sad king a family likeness eh he did beget ye ye young exiled royalties and from your grim sire only would the old state secret come Now, in his heart, Ahab had some glimpse of this, namely, all my means are sane, my motive, and my object mad. Yet, without power to kill or change or shun the fact, he likewise knew that to mankind he did long dissemble, in some sort did still. But that thing of his dissembling was only subject to his perceptibility, not his will determinate. Nevertheless, so well did he succeed in that dissembling that when with ivory leg he stepped ashore at last, no Nantucketer thought him otherwise than but naturally grieved, and that to the quick, with the terrible casualty which had overtaken him. The report of his undeniable delirium at sea was likewise popularly ascribed to a kindred cause and so too all the added moodiness which always afterwards to the very day of sailing in the pequod on the present voyage sat brooding on his brow Nor is it so very unlikely that far from distrusting his fitness for another whaling voyage, on account of such dark symptoms, the calculating people of that prudent isle were inclined to harbor the conceit that, for those very reasons, he was all the better qualified and set on edge for a pursuit so full of rage and wildness as the bloody hunt of whales gnawed within and scorched without with the infixed unrelenting fangs of some incurable idea such as one could he be found would seem the very man to dart his iron and lift his lance against the most appalling of all brutes or if for any reason thought to be corporeally incapacitated for that yet such an one would seem superlatively competent to cheer and howl on his underlings to the attack but be all this as it may Certain it is that with the mad secret of his unabated rage bolted up and keyed in him, Ahab had purposely sailed upon the present voyage with the one, only, and all-engrossing object of hunting the white whale. Had any one of his old acquaintances on shore but half dreamed of what was lurking in him then, how soon would their aghast and righteous souls have wrenched the ship from such a fiendish man? They were bent on profitable cruises, the profit to be counted down in dollars from the mint. He was intent on an audacious, immitigable, and supernatural revenge. Here, then, was this gray-headed, ungodly old man, chasing with curses a Job's whale round the world, at the head of a crew, too, chiefly made up of mongrel renegades and castaways and cannibals, morally enfeebled also by the incompetence of mere unaided virtue or right-mindedness in Starbuck, the invulnerable jollity and indifference and recklessness in Stubb, and the pervading mediocrity in Flask such a crew so officered seemed specially picked and packed by some infernal fatality to help him to his monomaniac revenge how it was that they so aboundingly responded to the old man's ire by what evil magic their souls were possessed that at times his hate seemed almost theirs the white whale as much their insufferable foe as his how all this came to be what the white whale was to them or how their unconscious understandings also in some dim unsuspected way he might have seemed the gliding great demon of the seas of life all this to explain would be to dive deeper than ishmael can go the subterranean miner that works in us all how can one tell whether leads his shaft by the ever-shifting muffled sound of his pick Who does not feel the irresistible arm drag? What skiff in tow of a 74 can stand still? For one, I gave myself up to the abandonment of the time and the place. But while yet all a rush to encounter the whale, could see not in that brute, but the deadliest ill. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Strangely's Moby Dick. If you have comments, questions, or would like to purchase the full audiobook of this project straight away, please send an email to saftp at t-u-t-a That's s-a-f-t-p at tuta.io. This project was supported by a distinguished group of wonderful patrons. Visit patreon.com slash strangely to learn more about how you can aid my ongoing attempts to amuse, inform, and occasionally mystify. I'll see you all in two weeks.